This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In the introduction to his new volume, Politics After Christendom, Political Theology in a Fractured World, David Vendrunen defines a term and a concept that we must understand. Christendom. I'm going to quote here. By Christendom, I mean the vision of Christian civilization that emerged in the very early medieval period and stretched well into the modern era, primarily in the West. Under Christendom, Christianity sought to be a civil power as well as a spiritual power. Most Western Christians lived within institutionally unified Christian societies in which political officials supported and protected the true church while suppressing heresies and non-Christian religions. Wild church, state, and other social institutions were technically distinct. They were linked in devotion to a common Christian culture. Few people would have found it controversial to say that their community was a Christian society. While the 16th century Protestant Reformation changed the character of Christendom in some ways, it did not end Christendom itself. So the questions before us are these. What is the state of Christendom? Is it over? And if so, what should faithful Christians do? Should they seek to reinstate Christendom or something else? Does Scripture provide us with a model for life after Christendom? John Woody Jr. says about this book, this volume is a brilliant capstone to David Vendrunen's project on reformed political and legal teachings. Senator Ben Sass writes about this book, idolatry leaves us empty and politics is no exception. Christians have good reason to be discouraged. We've placed too much hope in the powers of this world and we have neglected love of neighbor and maintenance of peace as two primary goals of politics. Into this muddled context, David Vendrunen presents a timely and compelling theological vision for political community, appealing to Scripture and acknowledging a crucial role for prudence and good judgment. Vendrunen outlines a much-needed path forward for Christian conviction and integrity in political life. This book has also received strong endorsements from John Bolt at Calvin Seminary and Andrew Walker at Southern Baptist Seminary. David Vendrunen is Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. The present volume, Politics After Christendom, Political Theology in a Fractured World, is the third of three books in the capstone to a significant project in Christian ethics. This, with other faculty titles, is available at the... Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dave, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. Your first volume was Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms. That was in 2010. My, <laughs> that was in 2010. Yeah, 10 years ago. Here we are, 2020. The second was Divine Covenants and Moral Order. That was in 2014. And now here we are with this third volume. So give us, if you can, <laughs> summarize uh, three books or give us an overview of this project. And where does this book fit with the other two? 
Sure, I'd be happy to do that. I should say that these books are not marketed as a trilogy, but it is accurate to see these as three interconnected books in a larger project. So I would say the first of those volumes, Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms, really has a historical focus. It tries to chart certain features of reformed social thought from the Reformation to the present. And I was looking particularly at the ideas of natural law, and the two kingdoms, as the title suggests. And these are common themes in earlier Reformed thought that had been, for the most part, neglected over the last century. And then the second volume, Divine Covenants and Moral Order, I would describe that more as a biblical theology. So moving from a historical theological study to a biblical theological study. And there I was trying to make a biblical theological argument particularly for the idea of natural law, for the idea that scripture actually taught this idea and what it said about that and what importance it has for Christian theology and ethics. And that brings us to this present volume, which I'm describing as a political theology. And by that, I mean a theological reflection on political community. So basically, what are we to believe? What does scripture teach about our political communities, about the purpose of our civil governments, about our place and role as Christians within these communities? And so there's a sense in which this is the more practical version, you might say. It's bringing the fruit of my earlier studies to bear on some more concrete issues of who we are as Christians in this world, particularly in our political communities, and you know, how might we think about some perennial issues of political and legal theory, like religious liberty, justice, authority, civil resistance. I'm not trying to construct some sort of a detailed public policy, but I do think that given what scripture says, there are certain more helpful and less helpful ways to be thinking about some of these pressing issues. You anticipated one of the questions that I wanted to ask, and that was, you gave us a quick definition or characterization. What is political theology? That's an idea with which the listener may not be familiar. And it was a term that I remember the first time I heard it, I thought, hmm, I wonder what that is. So I jotted down your definition. But I remember from the book that we're discussing, Politics After Christendom, Political Theology in a Fractured World, that you're defining politics not just in in the way that we often use that word in terms of partisan politics or even, you know, going to your local city council meeting and making an argument for this policy or that, you're using the word a little more broadly. Right. And I think that's an important thing to clarify. Yeah. So when we usually think of politics, we think of something like what happened the night before that we're talking, which was the Iowa caucus. And at this moment, we still don't know who won the uh, Iowa caucus. Yeah, Um, what did happen? I I, I don't know. I mean, by the time people are listening to this, they will know. but we don't know at this moment. So that's what we think of as politics. It often has a kind of a negative connotation as kind of down and dirty kind of struggle for power in this world. But as I try to explain early in this book, we get the word politics from this Greek word polis, which means city. And essentially what a city is in ancient Greek conception is this place where multiple individuals, multiple families come together, where they work together in some sort of common project in which different sorts of people have to try to forge a common life together. And so we might say that politics is sort of this art of coming 
coming together in these broader communities. Now, I also try to explain in the book that politics in this conception doesn't necessarily have to do with government. We say that government is one aspect of political life, but it's certainly not the only part of political life. I think we would say we don't want government to be everything in our political lives. Our political lives have to do about a lot more than the state as we know it. So when I'm talking about political theology, then I'm thinking about a theological understanding of what are these cities or what are these broader communities in which we come together as multiple individuals, multiple families, and how are we to understand how we are to live together and how does this fit into God's plan for this world? You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Together, it's an interesting idea because this is something we see very little of, it seems to me at the moment, people doing things together. One of the topics that you address in the volume is the question of nature and grace, of course, you and I think about the doctrine of common grace, you know, which is mediated to most of us through Abraham Kuyper, but which has roots in the older Reformed tradition as well. And then antithesis, right? The idea that there's a Christian way of looking at things and a non-Christian way, and these things are antithetical at their root. So how do you relate the idea of living together politically in the broad sense in which you defined with these other ideas of common grace and antithesis, and then we'll get to nature and grace. Yes, well, that is definitely a major thing that a political theology, at least as I envision it, has to wrestle with. So I think we have to affirm that there is a basic antithesis between believers and unbelievers, or a Christian way of thinking and an unbelieving way of thinking, at some fundamental level, we think and act in different ways. At the same time, I believe, and I make the argument for this in the book, that actually God calls us as believers to live together alongside unbelievers in our political communities. God did not institute political communities only for Christians. These are places in which Christians and non-Christians are called to live together in some sort of peace and some sort of justice and order. And that really is the challenge because that's not easy. Sure. I mean, we live in a world where cheek by jowl, you have people who think, well, human beings become human or are granted human rights when I say they are. And then I, next door, think, well, no, human beings are human at conception and endowed by their creator with certain, you know, unalienable rights. And here we are trying to live together. That's a pretty fundamental divide. The last time we had that kind of divide in America, we killed each other in massive numbers. Yes, that is a sobering thought. And there's a sense in which under Christendom, as you were talking about it at the opening of this conversation, there was sort of this attempt to say, you know, the only people who really ought to have a share in our political communities are those who think like us. And so we all ought to agree about all the same basic fundamental issues. And I'm making the argument that actually the Lord is calling us to strive to live in peace with all sorts of different people and not to try to eliminate from the political community those who don't agree with us about the most important things. And so that really is the challenge. How can we faithfully, wisely seek to live together peacefully as justly as possible with whom we disagree about fundamental things. And so here, I think the doctrine of common grace is very important because we recognize that in addition to God's saving grace by which he unites us to Christ and gives us a hope of everlasting life, God is at work in preserving a measure of peace in this world. And that should be of some encouragement to us as we seek to be 
faithful, godly people in our political communities. The early Christians, and when I say early, I guess I should say earliest, lived in a pagan culture, an overwhelmingly pagan culture. They were a marginal group, largely unknown, ignored, and to the degree they were known were misunderstood. And they lived cheek by jowl with people who openly worshipped false gods, left their children on the stoop to die, practiced chemical abortions. So maybe our world isn't so in that respect, fundamentally different from what our brothers and sisters experienced, say, in 55 AD in Corinth or in Rome. Right. And I actually make this observation very early on in the book is that one thing that can be encouraging for us today is that I think actually the New Testament prepares us for living in the kind of world in which we find ourselves. The New Testament doesn't prepare us for living in Christendom. The New Testament addresses a world in which believers are a small minority. It addresses a world in which Christians don't have any illusions about being in charge of things, in which Christians are trying to do their best to live at peace with all men as far as it lies with them, and yet also to recognize the legitimate authority of civil government. And I think as we try to do a biblical political theology, uh, there are all sorts of resources for us to live in the kind of world in which we find ourselves. We're talking with Dr. David Vendrunen about his new book, Politics After Christendom, Political Theology in a Fractured World, available from Zondervan and available at the bookstore and lots of other places here at wscal.edu slash bookstore. There's so many things that we could talk about. One of the things I wanted to ask is how should we think about Christendom? Because there is a significant movement in conservative Christian circles involving not a few Reformed folks that seeks to rebuild Christendom and sees that as a goal and a part of an eschatological vision of the world and I think I'm confident in saying that that's not your vision. But how do you respond to those who say, well, Vendrunen, you're a defeatist. You're giving up. We ought to be seeking to transform the culture, and we ought to seek to be reviving Christendom. You anticipated that, but flesh that out. Yeah, I think that is a fundamental question that I think any political theology is going to have to wrestle with. Does God wish us to strive for a unified Christian society in which civil government and economic institutions and everything else are united by a common confession of Christ. Now, of course, we all agree, I hope, that we believe in the proclamation of the gospel. We want as many people as the Spirit is pleased to convert to turn to Christ. Of course, that's not the question. I think the question is, do we believe that God has called our political communities as such to be those that are confessionally Christian. And my argument is no. And a big part of my argument is to say, actually, our political communities are covenantally grounded. And that's something that should resonate with Reformed people because we pay a lot of attention to the biblical covenants in Scripture. And my argument specifically is that our political communities are grounded in the covenant with Noah after the great flood. There, God covenanted with the entire world, including all human beings, so not just with believers, not just with those who profess the name of Christ, but with all human beings. And God called all human beings to live together in a common community, 
in which they are called to do justice. You remember in the Noahic Covenant, Genesis 9, verse 6, he who sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. That's a general call for justice. And that's given to the entire human race. And that Noahic Covenant is still in effect today. That covenant is in effect until Christ comes again. And so I'm, of course, simplifying my argument and people should buy the book to hear the whole argument. But my basic argument is that, (laughs) yes, there you go. I was hoping you would do that again. Sorry about that. I was a little late on the bell. But my basic argument is that because God has ordained political communities to grow out of this covenant with Noah, that we are to respect the commonality of our political communities. In other words, that these are communities that are supposed to bring together in a some kind of common life, both those who profess Christ and those who don't. Off air, you and I were talking a little bit about First and Second Peter. So you and I have arrived at similar conclusions somewhat independently. And I know you've given some thought to First and Second Peter that that's informing you. I see in First and Second Peter what I call a Noahic paradigm. He uses Noah to explain to Christians in Asia Minor in the early 60s that this is how Noah illustrates for us how we live in the world between the ascension and the return of Christ. Yes, and I was intrigued to hear your thoughts on that. One of the things that was important to me in developing some of the arguments in my book was in 1 Peter 2, when he calls us as Christians, sojourners and exiles. And I think that's really fascinating because when you hear those terms, we're supposed to think back to the Old Testament. Sojourners, you think about Abraham and his family. They were sojourners in the world. Abraham was not living in a confessionally Christian or whatever you would call it at that time sort of society. And then the exiles, that makes us think of the Babylonian exile in which the Israelites were taken out of their promised land and were living in a land controlled by pagans. And so in both instances, Abraham or the Israelite exiles had to live in common with their unbelieving neighbors and try to find their way and to live godly lives in that context. So very fascinating that Peter would say to us as New Testament Christians, This is actually what you're like. This is what your experience is like in this world. And I think that's a very different way of thinking about things than saying you are called to be creating a kind of a Christendom in which actually you're not so much a sojourner or you're not really in exile. You're in charge. This is your society. That's not what we're called to do, it seems. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480- 8474 Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Christendom lasted for a thousand years. 
So one of the things I do in our medieval Reformation course is to try to help students understand that we live on this side of it, on the other end of Christendom, but that it shaped our imaginations such that, as you suggested already in the book, and we're talking to David Vendronen about his new book, Politics After Christendom, Political Theology in a Fractured World. As you say in your definition of Christendom, this vision of the way Christians relate to each other, the way they relate to the world, the way the church relates to the state, that shaped our imagination for a millennium so that in the Reformation, that was just assumed. And yet here we are now, in a sense, dissenting from some conclusions that our Reformation forebearers received and accepted while we're affirming much of what they said and taught. Yes, it is a very interesting phenomenon. Most Reformed Christians today, in one way or another, reject certain aspects of the way the early Reformed thinkers thought about society. You know, what we would think of and what we would actually value as, say, the First Amendment paradigm in the United States is something that our Reformed forefathers would not have accepted. They did not believe in the freedom of religion the way we would think of it. They envisioned civil governments that affirmed the one true faith, as they understood it, and believed that government officials had responsibilities to be suppressing heresies and blasphemies and non-Christian religions. And so I'm thankful that, you know, say your church, the United Reformed Churches, my church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Churches, I mean, we've actually revised our confessional documents to reflect these things. We haven't done that with the vast majority of our confessional statements. Uh, We affirm the basic theology still today, but this is something that we have rethought. And I think it's been helpful for us to rethink these things. One project in which I was involved a year or two ago argued, one of the authors in the joint project argued that the revision after the Reformation of church-state relations and our abandonment of theocracy, the state enforcement of religious orthodoxy, is such a fundamental change that it means none of us are really faithfully reformed anymore. How do you respond to that? And I should have talked to you before I wrote my response. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it just well, occurs to me. <laughs> uh, well, I'll be interested to uh, see what your response is. I mean, look, we always have said as Reformed Christians that the scriptures are inspired, inerrant, infallible, but our own theology is not. And that just as in the 16th century, we had to reform the theology of the medieval church, we may not have gotten a hundred percent of things right at that time. And I think this is just an area where we have to be honest is that we made mistakes here. And I think it's proper for us in all humility to recognize that we're Christians on the way and we sometimes don't get things right. And I think it's better for us just to acknowledge if we in the Reformed tradition didn't get something exactly right. And if we need to repent and to do better, so be it. But I would say that the idea that the civil magistrate has to, in some way, enforce and support the true church. It's not a fundamental doctrine that changes the way we think of the atonement or the way we think of the sacraments or the way that we think of our ordo salutis. We can rethink church-state relations without touching all those other important areas of Reformed theology. Well, that was my response, so (laughs) we're on on the same page. You argue in the last part of the book for political tolerance— and religious liberty. How do you respond to the criticism that you're almost certainly going to get that your approach is a capitulation to modernity? Well, I think the only thing that I can do is to say to people, read my biblical theological argument 
And if you have criticisms of that, then make them on biblical theological grounds. I mean, I recognize that we are all affected by our cultural context. We're all affected by certain biases that we have. And so, yeah, I mean, there's always a danger that each one of us has to look out for that we try to make arguments that support positions that we want to hold for other reasons. I have tried my best to make a kind of a new kind of biblical theological argument for why there needs to be a generous measure of tolerance and religious liberty. And I am happy to hear back from other people who want to engage that argument seriously. So that's what I would like to hear from others. It seems to me that simply saying, well, you're just capitulating to modernity. Well, prove it by showing flaws in my argument, I would say. And, you know, I'm not trying to be cocky when I say that. I'm just saying that, you know, I've tried to make a rigorous argument. And so I hope people will deal with it on its own terms. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. In the New Testament, one does not see, as you've already suggested, we're talking to David Vendrunen about his new volume, Politics After Christendom, Political Theology in a Fractured World. One does not see in the New Testament any kind of extensive argumentation for a church-state relationship. I mean, there just isn't any evidence of Christendom in the New Testament. Romans 13 I've had conversations with people who effectively have said to me, well, I don't really care what Romans 13 says, which strikes me as odd, but also is not particularly faithful to the scriptures. How does the fact that we're in the New Testament, that we're not under Moses, I don't want to put words in your mouth, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that Paul sees Moses as a parenthesis, by the way, aren't you really arguing that Christendom was a kind of parenthesis and that this is the real thing? The New Testament is the real thing, that Moses worked for Jesus, to paraphrase uh, Hebrews 3. Uh, Right. I mean, I would say, and this is the way that my book presents things, God established in the covenant with Noah this idea that our political communities are to be common communities in which believers and unbelievers live together in some measure of peace and order. And when God entered covenant with Israel at Sinai and brought them into the promised land, that was, in the words that you use, it was a kind of a parenthesis. This was an unusual situation. Now, we recognize that a big chunk of the Bible is talking about life in this situation, right? And so I think there's a potential that that might maybe distort the way we think about things a little bit. But I think there are all sorts of evidence in Scripture that the way things operated in the promised land under the law of Moses for Old Covenant Israel was very specific for Old Covenant Israel. And as we were talking earlier, the fact that First Peter comes along and says, your exiles and sojourners. It's actually pointing us to ways of living that are different in important respects from what Israel in the promised land experienced. And so the way I would see it is that for us under the new covenant, in a number of important respects, our lives are more like the sojourning Abraham, more like Israel under exile than Israel in the promised land in which Granted, there was not anything like religious liberty the way we know it, in which there was a God-ordained system of 
politically, confessionally unified society. That was true even under the Romans, right? When Christians were persecuted, one of the things that they were made to do was to confess that Caesar is a god. They were made to pour out a drink offering in honor of the Greco-Roman gods. And the Christians said, listen, we want to be good citizens. We promise that we're keeping your laws. In fact, we keep them better than you do. Please don't kill us for our religious beliefs. And then they killed us (laughs) until they stopped. How does the Christian then take that paradigm that you're sketching, this Noahic paradigm for life after Christendom, into their cultural, political, in the broad sense, engagement with the surrounding world? And you work that out at the end of the book. Yeah, I mean, there's a longer answer than I can give right here, of course. But for one thing, I think it's important, I think, for us to remember as Christians that supporting some generous measure of religious toleration and liberty is good for us as Christians as we seek to evangelize the world. We don't really have a vested interest in having political communities that are religiously intolerant because we are a missionary religion in which we are calling people to leave their old faiths and to come and to join us in the church of Jesus Christ. So I do think that there's something pretty powerful to be said that the more we appreciate the missionary character of the Christian religion, the more friendly we ought to be to a kind of a religious tolerance in our broader societies. So I think on the one hand, we as Christians, we as churches want to be zealous evangelistically. And so that's part of our perspective. At the same time, it seems to me that as we think about our political responsibilities, I think we need to make a distinction between those responsibilities and our call to evangelize. And that, you know, there are times when we have to talk to our unbelieving neighbors about practical problems, challenges that we share in common. And how is it that we can have conversations with them? How can we try to work through a property dispute? How can we work through a disagreement about, you know, should we have a two-lane or a four-lane road here? As well as more weighty questions of law and politics, how can we do that even as we recognize that we disagree about some fundamentally important questions about God and the world and human beings? The last chapter in your book is reflections on the liberal and conservative traditions. Those are loaded words and they have a technical meaning that I think you're invoking. Walk us through that just a little bit at the end, just to entice the listener to take a look at this volume. And we're talking with Dr. David Vendernan about politics after Christendom, political theology in a fractured world. Yes. So this last chapter, I reflect on the liberal and conservative traditions. And I think it's really important to remember that people use the terms liberal and conservative in sometimes very different ways. And so I discuss that in this chapter, but I try to offer what I mean by liberal and conservative. And by the liberal tradition, I'm essentially getting at this idea that our political communities are made up of people with a lot of different worldviews or theologies or whatever term you want to use, and that we are called in some way to live together, to find ways to have a political polity without forcing our neighbors to convert and to think like us about these most important things. By the conservative tradition, I'm getting at the idea that we ought to have a kind of respect for the wisdom of our traditions, that we have learned things over time and we have gained a certain knowledge of the importance of institutions like family, for example, 
And what I suggest is that perhaps we could be comfortable with a kind of a conservative liberalism, a liberalism not in the sense of left-wing progressive politics. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a liberalism that is content to live in communities in which we try to live in peace with all sorts of different people. But it's a conservative liberalism in the sense that it respects traditional institutions, it respects the wisdom of the ages. And I hope that gives just a little bit of an enticement by saying that maybe liberalism and conservatism both have some aspect of the truth. I hope that can bring a kind of perspective on these things that a lot of readers haven't thought about. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.